Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that takes a magic marker and draws a thick line under the notion that creators can connect with little intermediation with their audiences. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Matt Bors is an independent political cartoonist. He's never had a staff job, and to my knowledge, he's never drawn a banker holding bags of money in which the banker is labeled banker in capital letters and the bags of money have giant dollar signs on them. You've almost certainly seen Matt's work before, but you may not have known that he created it. You'll recognize his style when you go to his website at mattbors, M-A-T-T-B-O-R-S dot com. Matt joins me from Portland, Oregon to talk about his whole career and especially the last crazy couple of years. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Hey, Glenn. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for thanks for being on the show. Now, I'll disclose to the audience, Matt and I are buddies. We met on Twitter, but we've met in real life now. So we've shaken hands. We know what we look like. And uh, not just electronic bits. And, uh, you know, Matt, I always took an interest in your work before we became friends because I, I'm always a, I've been a fan of editorial cartooning for a, a long time, and I like cartooning in general. And I always thought you had this, um, like, fresh and really sort of um, not hard edge, but pretty sharp style. You didn't pull punches, but you weren't offensive. You didn't cross to like shaking your finger at me and swearing and whatever it was. You had a point to make, but I always felt like your cartoons tried to be a little bit funny. Like you were trying to pull me in with the humor, even while you were making a strong argument. Yeah, there are probably other people who will disagree with that assessment <laughs> of my work, but that's kind of the goal, right? Is not to alienate people, right? I mean, I think you're someone who's probably receptive to a lot of my politics, so that that helps. But yeah, you know, it's kind of like I'm trying to ride this line between making political points and also being funny in order to kind of slip the political point in. And, you know, every, uh, a lot of cartoonists have sort of different degrees of comfort with how, you know, for lack of a better word, I don't know, edgy or, you know, how some some people are completely ham-fisted and you know, didactic and others are just kind of like doing milk toast gags with absolutely no political content. Well, that was what was fascinating to me when you won the Herblock Award, because Herbert Block was kind of this old school guy. I mean, he drew thousands of cartoons. He coined the term McCarthyism. He's kind of a, a legend. But I went back to look at his stuff after he won. And, and man, that guy was pretty pretty hard edge like he would have been let's say the matt boars of his time but you know in a mainstream paper and syndicated and washington post people saw his work but he did not pull punches either in an era when newspapers had such incredibly huge margins they could afford to pay lawyers and and not worry about one advertiser pulling its money yeah plus i, I think there's you know maybe an understanding amongst publishers then maybe i'm just romanticizing the past but you know in that era where they were kind of more cognizant of what a political cartoon could be, whereas in the 80s and 90s, I feel it got really watered down and sort of, you know, like I was saying, gag-oriented and like the newsweekification of editorial cartoons. But they used to be, I mean, incredibly partisan. I mean, you know, back in the heyday of newspapers when they're all when they were all like party organs and everything, um, and every you know there were five in every city, they all had editorial cartoonists, and they were just like attack dogs. I kind of like, you know, I kind of, uh, I like that aspect of it. It's funny to remember that too, is when I was uh, growing up, there was only one paper in my small hometown of Eugene, Oregon, but you know, New York has always had multiple papers and and still does. It's lost some even in the last uh, 30 years, but Seattle had two papers. Most cities of any size, even into the seventies had two papers and some 
lasted to the 90s. But I'm thinking you're not 30 yet, and or are you 30? No, you're not 30 yet. No, September. Young man. And uh, in your lifetime, you know, one paper cities are probably it, and then one alternative paper, maybe one weekly that's sort of a rag now, and one alt paper and one mainstream paper. But it's funny to think about a time when there could have been multiple papers. What What was the thing that supported all those newspapers back then? I don't know. Classified advertising? Uh, um, uh, was ad monopoly on uh, ad revenue, maybe? Sales for department store underwear sales? It's like, it's like <laughs> what? You know, I always wonder what changes. I mean, I think maybe it's the, um, maybe it's the shift to broadcast news and television, but, you know, even in the 50s and 60s, while you had all these people with television sets and there was plenty of advertising, something shifted eventually in newspapers where it all kind of fell apart. I mean, part of it, I know there are some tax things we hear about in Seattle, but, uh, but yeah, so, you know, you grew up at a time when you started working in this field, you were already past the point at which newspapers had started their collapse where, you know, where they used to pay people for this kind of thing. Yeah. It's a great time to start a career, right? Yeah. In this industry. <laughs> um, and I seem to be like one of, you know, the maybe the last person that got my foot in the door in this, this field, for whatever reason, there's just kind of no one else getting into it. So I, I was even syndicated in 2000, no, it wasn't 2003, 2006 or something, which was, uh, I was pretty young. You know, it was back when they were still signing people up. It was like the last batch of people that had <laughs> been signed up by United Media and me and Rich Stevens, who does Diesel Sweeties, and uh, Keith Knight, who launched a daily strip that's still going called The K Chronicles. And yeah, you just kind of hung with it. But then in 2008, there was, you know, the economy collapsed and, you know, print, print media was already reeling, but in 2008, it just kind of went, went to hell and um, all weeklies, especially, or maybe just because I was, you know, they were, they were my kind of my client base. I think our client list just got decimated, right? I think, you know, if you had 80 papers, you suddenly had 50, right? And um, everybody lost a lot of lot of clients back then because the alt papers they had in seattle i know in a lot of cities there's both like a mainstream and an alternative economy so the alt economy isn't really as alternative as used to be it's sort of mainstream but it's you know it's the clubs and music restaurants things like that and the newspaper rates uh for advertising in the mainstream papers wind up being or become too high and uh if, to my understanding, like the alt papers were where publications went to because they were trying to find their audience, which was younger than a conventional daily newspaper audience. But even then, it's like those people, where did they go? They went online, of course, right? So as the people, uh, you know, stop even picking up the free weekly paper and advertisers stop flocking to it, uh, you know, that seems like uh, we, we find again, it's like that migration to a different form of online media. Right, except it's not really being replaced online, I don't feel, you know, I mean, advertising rates are notoriously low and you don't even see popular websites that are read by, you know, millions of people don't even have the staffs of a modest size alt weekly. Yeah. There's that line about dollars in print advertising becoming pennies online or something like that, trading eyeballs, you know, dollars for pennies or nickels. And it, it seems true, but let's back up just a second because you got into this, uh, I was talking about being in syndication in 2006, but this has been, uh, your adult career. You started as a cartoonist at age 20. Um, uh, you started working in this field. Yeah. Well, I was, I was, uh, 19 and I started doing political cartoons for the 
student newspaper at the Art Institute of Pittsburgh, which was basically a uh, runoff on a copy machine and stapled together, right? It wasn't, a, yeah, it wasn't like something you'd see at most colleges because we're talking about a small, small art school. You know, I, I've always wanted to draw comics. I mean, I had this kind of like myopic focus since I was a little kid of only wanting to draw comics, but sort of the kind of comics I wanted to do, you know, evolved from wanting to do X-Men to wanting to do like indie underground stuff and graphic novels. And then finally political cartoons. Once I kind of became political in the aftermath of nine 11 and the run up to the Iraq war, which you know, coincided with me reaching adulthood. So, so you're saying um, you got radicalized by nine 11 then. Yeah, I guess, <laughs> I guess so. You know, I mean, it's, it's kind of, um, I don't know if it's a, if it's a chicken or egg thing, like if, if nine 11 in Iraq never happened, would I still, you know, have become a, a political cartoonist, and I, I don't, I have, I don't know the answer for that. But it was, um, it was definitely a motivating factor in me initially drawing cartoons was opposition to the Iraq War. So, you know, and then it's like once you do something like that, um, there's the editor was like, you know, will you have one for next week? And I was like, oh sure, you know, this is fun. I'm drawing comics for a publication all of a sudden. Plus, it's like you know, you get to, it's an outlet. You get to rant and have your little soapbox to make your little points and, you know, and then it's just kind of well then you got to do one the next week and then the week after that and the week after that and then you know then then you got a paying client and then it just kind of you know slowly snowballed until where i'm at now a thousand cartoons later a thousand cartoons we talked about this at some point like have you you've taken a day or two of vacation here and there over 10 years y- yeah i um I think you had a few of, days off not that long. You actually take a few, I did. After, like after three or kick, four. <laughs> after the Kickstarter, I took, I think I took three days off, which was the longest stretch I've ever taken off work since I started working. Cautionary um, tale to listeners, but but not really. I mean, this is the thing is you've been dedicated to this, but I, I sort of wonder about that is that you've, you talked about when you won the Herblock Award, it was a $15,000 prize, plus they paid the tax. They gave you an extra payment to cover tax. So it was essentially tax-free. And I remember yeah. you saying this thing at the time. What was, was it that you said when you got that prize? Well, I think you're talking about the fact that I said it was more money than I make from my editorial cartoons in a given year. Right. You know, I make, a, I make a little bit more than that because I, I do various freelance jobs. But from my actual cartoons, you know, I, I don't make a ton. You know, you can, uh, they're running all weeklies and they pay, you know, $20, $25 here. And I don't have a real extensive client list. So, you know, um, you can just kind of do the math. And it's like, if you got 10 places running your work, you're, you know, it's not like you're, you're not pulling in a, a ton of money. But, but things have gotten better since then because I've been doing the, I've done the Kickstarter and all of that. Well, you got, I know that was a good year of attention. That was, that's why you know, I joke 2012 was the Matt Boers year because suddenly, I mean, 2011, uh, you know, I guess we'll get up to that. You did a cartoon that got a lot of attention beyond, uh, what you, I would say, usually see, although your cartoons are, are often widely, uh, disseminated, not always with attribution, but they are widely <laughs> disseminated. Uh, and then 2012, you went in and had sort of the awards exposure and the Kickstarter and, and, We'll, we'll get to that in a second. I, you know, I don't, the thing is, you seem to me to be, uh, you're not an extreme person, I think. You have, um, strongly held feelings and you work, but you don't have that obsessive thing that some people do that drives them to, you know, let's say the Occupy Wall Street extreme where it's, um, you wind mm-hmm. up camped out for three months and living on rice and sushi deliveries from, you know, wealthy supporters <laughs> and whatever. Like, and I'm not saying you're not an activist, but I'm saying, 
to devote yourself for 10 years to something that is – you're living very close to the bone. You had a 10-year period in which you're not trying to prove yourself exactly, but the, the next goal, like the thing that's going to happen, newspapers are falling apart, the syndication thing happens. I'm always curious about – I mean I have this internal fire that that, <laughs> that, makes, that motivates me. I get up in the morning and I'm often like, woo I like to know what makes other people tick in that regard. How did you spend – that 10 years, it must have been difficult, but you certainly did this. You put out, you know, three strips a week for how many years now? And then in strips before that, what did you do in the morning? What did you do to get up and get through this while you're building this career without this end goal in sight? Well, I do have and the end goal in sight is to, you know, maximize the amount of time that I can draw and create comics. And, you know, the best way I figured out or, or thought of at the time to do that was by doing freelance artwork. So, you know, not having a day job and just doing freelance illustration. And at first it was like I was doing my two strips a week and doing, you know, just tons of all weekly illustrations, right? I was I was working for all weeklies and they were, you know, paying ridiculously low rates. And I was doing, you know, covers for Tulsa and Seattle. And I mean, I think in, it must've been like 2006 or 2007, I probably did a, a cover for almost every all weekly in the country. I mean, it was doing mm. like two or three a week. And that was how I built up, uh, you know, enough income to, well, uh, around that time I was moving, moving to Portland. So, you know, and then it's just kind of been this process of trying to kind of claw more space for myself and my work week for cartoons. And then if I ever, you know, if I ever get to where I'm a little bit more secure in that, then maybe we, I can start carving out the, uh, the weekends. Right. But, um, yeah, it's been just sort of like wanting to maximize the amount of time I'm drawing cartoons. So, and, and there's been a lot of, a lot of, uh, little points along the way that are encouraging. I mean, it's just been like a really slow, slow build. You know I mean? I got syndicated at a, pretty young age and so that was encouraging and I was like oh I'll stick with this and then you know you, you pick up a paper like one time I picked up the the village voice and I was like oh you know this is this is crazy I'm in the village voice this is like you know Jules Pfeiffer and Tom Tomorrow and all these guys have been have been in the village voice it's historic they used to run you know Linda Berry and Matt Groening and although at the time you know they were just like this dwindling paper with you know that barely paid anything for cartoons and then dropped me after a, a year or so but it was still like a nice little feather in the cap right so you know it's, it's just been things like that that keep you going i guess so you had you've had sustaining events i mean that's you know i think about it in portland you know you're living in the midwest and pittsburgh before that and uh you know portland because of portlandia but even before for those of us who live in the <laughs> pacific northwest portland was always seen as uh, you know, i grew up in eugene and eugene became sort of a bigger city portland was this scary town to the north of eugene and it was full of crime and then it suddenly became a paradise over a number of years. Like the city did some kind of miracle and the downtown became restored and people wanted to move there and it became like this incredibly wonderful, livable city. But it seemed to also have this siren call that like anybody who had a creative impulse or thought they did went to Portland. Did you feel like there was a community you were seeking out or what, what drew you there? Yeah, you know, I don't... I- I don't really know that it was very complicated. I was born and raised in Ohio and moved back there after college, after, you know, two years in college. And I'd always wanted to move to the West Coast for whatever reason and live in a city, right? So Seattle, San Francisco, LA, I think those are a little bit too expensive on a cartoonist budget. So then that leaves Portland, right? It's like the next the next thing on the list. I mean, that, I, I don't know if there was anything more 
more to it than that. I hadn't, I didn't know anybody here. I didn't know anyone in the incredibly large comics community, but now I do. And I think, you know, a lot more people have moved here since then. I mean, I, I think per capita, we've got a higher cartoonist rate than, than New York City for sure. It's also Kickstarter says that one of its highest concentration of Kickstarter projects is in Portland as well. Oh, nice. Yeah. Compared, I well, mean, per capita. We've got that whole, uh, you know, DIY vibe going on. Well, and I think that's, you know, that, that issue about when I grew up in Eugene, I grew up in the 80s there, and I knew people who, I don't know what the inflation-adjusted value for, but I knew people who were living on two or $3,000 a year in the 1980s, and they, you know, they shared apartments with people, they didn't own a car, which I think is your thing too, and yeah. they were having, a, actually, because health care was not that expensive in the 80s, there were free clinics, there were other things, and just even walking to an ER, you wouldn't walk out with a $10,000 bill that you had to go bankrupt if not pay. So they actually lived pretty well, and these were younger people, so they had fewer health problems, the whole thing. So I knew people like that, and then it seemed like Eugene got to be a big town, everything grew up, and suddenly it's like, no, you really have to be at the certain scale to live. You've spent a, a you know, decade until this last year working within that kind of scale, you know, does that affect the choices you make in life or did, did you structure your life? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, you seem like a happy guy. This is the thing. I think when I met you, I thought you're an awfully happy person and obviously money doesn't buy happiness, but it can alleviate concerns. You know, were you in this constant struggle or did you, did you find a way to be happy within the constraints of doing the work you loved, even though the money was poor? Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I did. I think otherwise I'd be, you know, miserable. I, I, there's a, some people are. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, there's a Jack Kirby line, I think it's Jack Kirby, which is, uh, comics will break your heart. Yeah. This is like, I mean, I'm sure, you know, trying to be a stand-up comic and trying to do 10,000 other things that are difficult to kind of make it in uh, are tough, but I mean, like comics, yeah, it will it will destroy you and spit you out, right? I mean, you know, there's only a few, like, small industries where you or small genres in comics where you can kind of make good living. I mean, if you draw mainstream comics for a living, you probably, you can make good money, but it's, it's just, you know, it's a passion and um, you, you don't do it for money, but when you cross over into doing it for money, then you need it. Right. So once comics consumed a certain amount of my work week, it was like, there was no, like no turning back whatsoever. Like I couldn't get a day job without, you know, cutting, cutting out the amount of comics I do. And if I, if I had lived in, you know, Brooklyn or something, it would have been time to, uh, you know, scale back my ambitions and get a day job a long time ago. So part of living in Portland was that, you know, it's a very affordable city and that plays into, you know, one of like, I haven't, I've never got a car and don't pay car insurance. And I've also never, I don't have health insurance either. So I haven't, I haven't been to, to a doctor since I was in high school. So, you know, let's hope I don't get uh, hit by a TriMet bus while I'm riding my bike around Portland so you, tomorrow. You've got this intersection. You're like waiting for Obamacare. It's, that's your, yeah. <laughs> you know, I will be forced to buy it soon. So that's, that's but you'll get subsidized. I mean, that, I'm actually being sort of like serious, not serious. Like the, you know, in some countries people can pursue professions that are not lucrative because there's a safety net and they're, they wind up, you know, there's that like, drain on society because of social safety arguments, right? But in these countries, there's people who contribute to the cultural welfare of the country, and they are supported by the country because there's a basic level of when you retire, there'll be, you know, money for you. When you're working, there's disability. When there's health care, there's like all there's subsidized housing so that you're not obliged to necessarily work at some level and kill yourself at it that you can actually contribute in a different way. I mean, it seems like – I mean, I'm not and, – and there's only – certain percentage of the country that can do that, right? It has to be a productive part that's like extra productive and a different part that's, you know, contributing in different ways. But I feel like our country doesn't value that 
at all. Like we value a certain kind of like um, – you either have to be very successful or you have to work really hard and fail really hard. Like you have to break your back and do manual labor 80 hours a week and still not have health insurance. And then you're okay. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically what, you know, trying to be a freelance cartoonist is. I mean, the, the, <laughs> the rates in this industry are not, um, you know, famously high or anything like that. So it's, I, I find myself, I actually, you know, we're talking about this. I, I don't really think about it a lot, but uh, you know, I, I do work basically, six or seven days a week and have conditioned myself to kind of like a 60 or 70 or 80 hour work week and is entirely normal and happens all the time. I mean, I can't even remember. I, I, I've never worked 40 hours a week and it's always kind of, you know, if I think about it, it's kind of amazing that people are just done with work at five o'clock and then that's, that's it. Right. I, I don't understand that either. <laughs> it's not a, it's not a complaint though. You know I mean? I'm perfectly yeah. happy doing what I'm doing and I love working and I, you know, I want to work into the night. I'm doing comics. I just, uh, you know, wish it. Always wish it paid a little better. But that's that's this is where the arc of your life goes to, though. Is uh, one other component I'll bring in too is that you've always had mentors and a community, certainly among the editorial cartoonist world. There's, you know, Ted Rall, who's who I'd had some correspondence back in the '90s when the internet was young, and I told him how to get Amazon affiliate credit, and he sent me a signed book. It was really lovely, and one is Latchkey's book, and uh, Tom yeah. Tomorrow, who's just won the Herblock Award this year when you were judging panel, he won uh, the second alt cartoonist mm-hmm. to win there, and Jen Sorensen. There's folks who are in their you know 40s, 50s, and some of them beyond. Uh, Jack Oman, who I know is not an alt cartoonist, but uh, was the Oregonian's uh, newspaper's cartoonist for a long time. I know supported you as a like conceptually supported you not financially yeah and um so you had this pool of people who were older here's the thing i wonder what percentage of time did they try to convince you to get out of your career and what percentage were they said no keep doing this please keep doing this well i think there's a lot of like you know internal griping about rates and editors and freelance life and stuff like that but you know on the whole i think you know, no one definitely ever seriously discouraged <laughs> me from, you know, pursuing it. I mean, I, I did have a lot of help and, uh, from some people, Ted Rawl in particular, cause he was acquisitions editor at United media at the time. Oh. That was his kind of like part-time gig for a few years. And he's the one who brought in me and Rich Stevens and, um, and Keith Knight. And, you know, then he got laid off of course. And, uh, uh, well, it's tricky because the model, we talked about this a few weeks ago with Zach Wienersmith, who does a uh, uh, Saturday morning breakfast uh, comics and all. Yeah, he's great. That. Yeah, super nice guy. And we had a great talk about the web, we'll talk about web comics in a little bit too with you. But, uh, yeah, that was his thing was, um, you know, we, he looked at what he might do. I mean, he wasn't confident about getting the papers. And by the time he thought about whether even that might work, it's like you knew that there weren't going to be enough papers to make it worth. And in the old days, and, and this is true still for a few people, like the people who do Zitz and Scott Adams and Leo and a few other strips that have made it big. You could still be in a thousand plus papers in the United States. And then you also have foreign syndication because newspapers outside the United States in some countries actually are still popular and people read them. And immigrant oriented papers in the United States, Spanish language, other language papers in the United States yeah. are read like crazy for people of less focus on the internet. So there's places in which if you have the right niche or the right comic strip, there's a few you know, some dozen, maybe a hundred people who make some part or a really good living from selling a strip, either a panel or a three-panel strip. I but, know. I've, I've often thought about moving to another country and uh, becoming an editorial cartoonist in like Egypt or India or something where they have like, you know, a thriving print industry and it's like the main <laughs> form of media. And people like still go to the newsstand and there's like 10 newspapers and they all have editorial cartoonists. Let's pause for a message from a sponsor, me. 
You may know that I have other jobs besides this podcast. I write for several publications as a freelancer, but most of my time since October 2012 has been spent working as editor of The Magazine, an electronic publication developed by Marco Arment, a previous guest on the show. He built the app and the website that power The Magazine as a way to deliver original commissioned articles in a distraction-free reading experience, much like he designed for Instapaper. Well, I'm not just the host of The New Disruptors, I'm also a client. In May, Marco and I reached an agreement for me to purchase the magazine from him, and I'm now the editor and the publisher. We publish five articles with great photography and illustration every two weeks. We try to find subjects of interest to curious people that have a thread of technology in them. It might be about typewriter repair or the reboot of instant Polaroid film or the way that Facebook makes it hard to actually get closure on a romantic breakup. We cover food, drink, technology, the human heart, and much more. A single subscription grants you access to read both on the web and via our free iPhone and iPad app, and you can read current issues and all of our archived articles. It costs $1.99 per month, and you get two issues. A couple times a year, you even get three issues. You can also pay $19.99 for a one-year subscription. There's a free seven-day trial in the app and via the website, so give it a try and tell me what you think. We try to be interesting, enlightening, and as often as possible, fun. Search for The Magazine in the App Store to download our app or go to the-magazine.org to read one article at no cost and no registration or to sign up for a free trial. That's the-magazine.org. And now, back to the show. It's it's amazing, though. We think this is ridiculous. I mean, it seems absurd because we think the United States is the world. And, ca- and Canada, you know, we look at Canada, it's very similar. England, they've had some consolidation, but they still have a fairly effective newspaper uh, world there. Yeah, well, um, I think the Times of India is the largest English language newspaper in the world. Yeah, yeah, it's and you know, in Mexico, tons of newspapers. It's anywhere where there's a, a boundary between like the far edge of literacy, where you're you're past you're past functionally literate, but you may not be extremely literate. And then there's other countries like Costa Rica that push an incredible amount of effort into making everyone literate. And they have, you know, 90 plus 95% literacy rates, like better than the United States. So you have that market. And then the lack of money to have continuous computer or internet access, that's where newspapers still fit in much of the world. All right, so we've got to take out the yeah. internet. Is well, what you're saying. I picture you as yeah, I picture you as the like the Jakob Smirnoff of some other country. You'd go to like, um, you know, Pakistan, and you'd be there like, yes, the, you know, United States, such a funny country. Let me tell you about George W. Bush, you know, and just and just be that that guy. Oh, he's that U.S. guy. We publish in all our newspapers here. I mean, I'm only half joking when I said that I've seriously considered this. I mean, if I got a real job offer in a country that I wanted and, you know, wanted to go live in for a while, I might do that. Right. I mean, I could, I can still do kind of what I'm already obligated to do, which is like my two to three editorial cartoons a week on us politics and do stuff on, on <laughs> like what's going on in Abbottabad, about Pakistan these days anyway. Well, right. <laughs> the, the internet is becoming another country and, uh, and that's where we should transition into because we, you know, we may wind up being the country you move to because you have a pretty good piece of land on the internet now. And I, I think, uh, you, you know, you've, You've always had that issue where your comics would wind up, say, on the front page of Reddit, right? Yeah. And get a bazillion people pushing it up there. But in the past, like a few years ago when this would happen, I know you were more irate about it because it seemed like attribution would be stripped. No one would know where it came from. It's sort of like – Well, yeah, that's – I don't even know how you pronounce it, Imager. 
Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. That's right. It's the that's the site that sort of hosts all of Reddit's images, right? I've never understood why people pull images and host them on other sites like that. I mean, I know. Just, I guess maybe it's just because I came up always like wanting to link to people and credit people and stuff like that, and being kind of 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 that mindset. But this whole like thing where you just like rip something from a site and then load it onto another <sighs> one and link to that, I I, act, I kind of don't understand what that's, that's from. I guess it's because. You know, when you're on Reddit, you blow up a site up and the and the site crashes. So then, you know, they want it to be on an image hosting site or something. But you know, it's like I'm specifically paying not for that not to happen my, with my server. It was politeness. It was. It used to be. I would say even. I mean, do you remember the meltdowns you get? Even I don't know. Like I want to say like two or three years ago, how routine it was that someone got linked to and the site went down. Like daring fireball slash dot yeah. dig whatever it was. Like the site was just down and that was it. And if you notice, like, in the reverse sense now, you hear less and less of that because so many of the hosting companies out there, the, you know, WordPress and Squarespace and whoever, you know, all the different firms that do stuff, they now are robust enough. They figure out how to cache things the right way. So you can have a million hits in a minute and it's fine. Yeah, I mean, I remember web hosting packages being really, like, restrictive and having all these, like, okay, it's like two gigs of traffic a Oh yeah, you pay ten dollars a gig, and right. So I think there was a the Reddit community tends to be, a, you know, sort of the older veteran, whatever. It's got such an insular quality among a lot of the boards there that have a lot of traffic, and those people. So there was a point at which it was polite. I'm not going to crash your site. I'm going to link to it. There's also that issue of like if you just copy the image URL, people would do stuff. They would swap in, you know, a, a Goatsy or something like that yeah. into it. They're like, you ripped it off my site. I'm going to show you this. So there was. A practical part, but but we've I feel like we moved a little bit beyond that. It's not like attribution is suddenly magically everywhere, but you've managed to you and a lot of the other cartoonists. I feel like I see you get credit more. Like it's not that everyone in the world suddenly realized they should link to your site, but it feels like you've made it easier. And then the rise of social networks like Facebook, I think you've done very well with. Uh, I see whenever you post something there, there's a ton of comments, engagement as they call it, right? It's like people want to interact with you there and there's likes and whatever. So it feels like you have the more of the power now to push your cartoons out in forums where people go to and see them. Am I reflecting reality or is there still a lot of the sort of ripoff thing happening as well? Um, no, I think you're right. I don't see it as much. I think part of it is like I was I'm one of the, I'm a young whippersnapper who was engaged <laughs> online when you know Facebook the advent of Facebook and Twitter and I sort of you know build up my audience there as they as uh, my print clients fled right and you know part of the reason I think I've built up an audience on them is that I'm online constantly because I'm working from home and so it is easy to kind of you know engage which is a, a word I sort of hate but um I know. I want a different word where it's like, it's actually talk to people, right? We're having conversations with folks. Like I go on Facebook. I'm not trying to promote something. I'm like, let's talk about this. And you're there to talk and you respond. Well, you know, you could look at, you can go look at, um, you know, pick a staff cartoonist at a, at a newspaper, right? And, you know, go check their Facebook link or something like that when they uh, post a cartoon or, you know, they, they're just, there's nobody on there. There's, you know they're not really using Twitter in the way that it's 
used well. I mean, they go in every day and like drop a link to their new cartoon or something, and they haven't built any audiences on this. And you know, from their perspective, what what do they care? They're getting they're actually getting paid well in healthcare from their employers, so they they kind of see these things as just like extra cumbersome activities that you now have to do in this whole new digital realm. And they're right to an extent, but you know, if these guys lose their job tomorrow, I mean, they have no audience online, right? They, they haven't cultivated an audience. And that's like the whole reason why my Kickstarter was successful is because I have all these readers on Facebook and on Twitter and, and, and I have a, uh, somehow I have a very large uh, Twitter following. I don't know what's normal for, t- or I mean, I'm sorry, Tumblr, Tumblr. <laughs> I don't know what's normal for yeah, Tumblr yeah. accounts, but I have like tens of thousands of people there. I mean, it's not like, you know, celebrity numbers, but it's, it's definitely more than, more than Facebook. Well, I want to talk about the breakout thing that I think happened to you in 2011. And I think it, I, I don't know if it's the basis of everything that's happened since, but I feel like something changed for you. And we had already been buddies by that point. So I was kind of watching your career more closely and see when you posted things and, you know, you, you, you launched your Tumblr when you, um, you know, last year revised the site and started doing more e-commerce. Like you made a bunch of changes over a period of like the last year and a half, including the Kickstarter almost in the, you know, the middle of that or six or eight months ago. But there was this, um, your, your, cartoon that I think maybe had the most impact, maybe it's not the one that's been most seen, but the Steve Jobs one, where you took a different angle. You were peeved at this whole pearly gates thing, right? The whole, like, Steve Jobs at the pearly gates and there's someone with an iPad. Yeah, well, you know, every every um, editorial cartoon that's like a obit cartoon when uh, a celebrity dies, it's like them standing at the pearly gates uh, talking about, you know, saying a line that they were famous for saying, or in, in worst-case scenarios, like the thing that they were most most associated with, crying. So in the Steve Jobs case, there were actually cartoons that were Apple logos that had tears coming from their, I don't know where. Oh you know, this <laughs> is just like a, such a laughable trope that these guys, you know, take seriously and think are like as a good commentary. And it's just mocked online mercilessly. I mean, I see people like Jim Romanesco, you know, when someone dies, it's like the fun game on Twitter now is like predicting what the stupid obit cartoons are going to be, right? And I kind of, I've been known to be real critical of the field in in that regard for like these old tropes, like Pearly Gates or Sinking Ships, because I think they've made us like, they've helped contribute to us being, you know, becoming more irrelevant, right? And um, that's just that's just not the type of humor that is resonant with most people these days, right? So anyway, I'm getting on my editorial cartoon rant tangent but the um the steve jobs one you know it was it made fun of um well made fun of the the editorial cartoon tropes made fun of steve jobs and he said well you know he wouldn't be in heaven anyway because he's a buddhist so then he gets reincarnated as an iphone factory worker so it was like uh making fun of i don't know three things two things four things I think it was four, and you had, right, you had, and right, it was self-referential too, because Saint Peter is there. He's like, "Ooh, you know, uh, are you coming up to the cloud? And let me check you in on my iPad." It's like, "All right, all right, fine, I'll send you back." You know, you're a Buddhist. Let's reincarnate you. But it was it, you. You were blowing up ideas of religion, and it, it, I, I love that strip. And I will reveal to the audience, I bought this original from you because I saw it and said, "This is the deal. This is like the best single statement." And Everyone who has some relationship with Apple, I don't even know what that means. Like, I was sad. I can't even tell you why I was sad. I mean, I was... Do you have a consumer experience with Apple? It's the weirdest thing. It was like a religious figure dying. I still, as I look at myself at it, I, like, I don't remember. I can't tell you why 
that I had such a strong emotional reaction. It was like part of it had nothing to do with the man. I mean, it did. You know, we don't know the man. You know, I was reading one of these uh, articles, these like generational slander articles, you know, <laughs> that's like talking about how the kids these days are all whacked out and do things differently. And one of the things they were lamenting is that we don't have like huge cultural experiences that are all the same anymore, as if, as if first of all, that would be something to lament in the first place. But they were saying like, you know, album drops, like, you know, days that albums would come out like Thriller, right? We would all go home and we'd everyone would be listening to Thriller, right? But it, I kind of think we do have the, the same thing happens with things that are hugely popular online that just like everyone is sharing and seeing, you know, like these insanely viral videos, like the, you know, obviously, uh, what was the... Gangnam Style? Yeah. <laughs> you know what's funny? I didn't see it for a month. I was, I'm, I'm such an anti-hipster, like I'm such a, I'm an old curmudgeon. I was like, I heard about it. I waited a month and then I finally saw a parody of it. I'm like, oh, I got to see the original thing. And it had, you know, 400 million views by that point. And I'm like, awesome. I want to be the 400 millionth person to see that. I did the same thing with um, the Harlem Shake. I was like, <laughs> I was so like, funny. I refuse. I held out for so long. I, I, I held out. I don't know how long it was. It was weeks and weeks, right? And it was everyone was doing. They were doing their new post, right? It was f- five days after the Harlem Shake blew up, and they were like, "Oh, the Harlem Shake is dead." It was on the Today Show. They killed, <laughs> they killed the meme. It's too popular. I was like, I haven't even seen this thing yet. So the memes are co opted like instantly. They're immediately remixed into into new memes. Or like uh, the Arrested Development had just dropped while we're recording this. It was a few days ago. Haven't whole, seen an episode of Arrested Development, so there. Yeah, exactly. Well, I watched some of the original, and I'm like, everyone suddenly is like, okay, it's dropping. I'm going to watch all the entire fourth season dropped at once on Netflix. Going to watch it all at once, and my feeds are full. Everything everyone's talking about, like, I don't care about spoilers, but I'm like, there, that was a cultural event, but it was released simultaneously digitally to a subset of people or subscribers, but they're all in the same circles of things, of social media and whatever is available now. Yeah, so you know, this things are breaking into smaller groups, right? If, if we're not all, I guess, going home and listening to Thriller like it used to be, but I still, I still think the point is, is that that stuff happens, and that article was wrong, and it was stupid, as all <laughs> articles about generational differences are. And that was related to Steve, because we were talking about the Steve Jobs cartoon. So that was, yeah, I mean, that was that that was a cultural event. Is that we all shouldn't say we all, but a lot of us had people I know who had no connection to. Uh, Apple at all. You know what happened again with Aaron Swartz when he killed himself? Yeah. That people came out of the woodwork. I mean, he's a young man. He's a troubled life and trying to do good and all that. There were like all these emotional heartstrings. Well, and I was, I, I knew him in passing, but I was miserable about it. But I was surprised how upset people who not only didn't know him, but didn't know anything about him before he committed suicide, how, their reaction to him. Yeah. I think what happens, you know, the Apple thing was, was kind of like that. And my cartoon. And I and I hey I'm uh, I got my phone and my Apple phone and my Apple computer like I guess I like Apple products but yeah I didn't feel this kind of like emotional reaction to his to his death but I think what happens is you know social media there's like a uh, a snowballing effect once people start talking about it because it's almost like you know you're in you're in a room with people like on Facebook and Twitter right and if everyone is talking about Jobs' death and how it's sad and how you know let's listen to this speech that he gave at a college and then you're like posting some frivolous thing about uh, what you did today then it's kind of like uh, it's like a social faux pas now on online it's social media faux pas maybe so I think there's like a, a tendency for people to kind of like get worked up over whatever's in the the zeitgeist this day, whatever it's, uh, you know, Harlem Shake or a celebrity's death, right? And then with doing that cartoon, after 
then there's the backlash, right? The second wave is like, why is everybody so upset about this, you know, rich asshole dying? Right. And, um, which I was, I was in that group, but I didn't say anything yet. And I was like, oh man, these people, people are so intense about this. And I was just kind of thinking and I was complaining about the cartoons and I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. And by the time it came out, it was like a week and a half after his death. And so then it was like, it was okay. I, I don't even think it would have had the same reaction if I released it a day or two after his death. I think people would have like wanted to kill me. But by the time it came out, there had still not been a cartoon that was even remotely critical of this guy. So I think it was kind of like doing what an editorial cartoon is supposed to do, what I'm trying to do week in and week out, but usually don't succeed at, which is like, you know, say the unsaid thing, right? That's right. But it was also, I think you're right about the timing is that people were at that point, they were people, even people who had these strong feelings like I did for whatever reason I did, I still don't know, but you know, maybe it's part of my childhood is gone. I don't know. Whatever the... Emotional attachment to um, Apple products. I don't know. Well, it's weird. It's I think it's that he was an avatar for a lot of feelings people had. So when he died, you feel like those feelings are now invalid or gone. As uh, my self analysis, but so even I, who had this emotional response, like I don't know why I'm crying about this guy being gone. Like a week later, you're like, oh my god, could people just you just you saw all the maudlinness, yeah. and then people still being overwrought. And I'm like, it's okay for his family to mourn for as long as they want, but really, if you don't know the guy, we're past that point. And the terrible editorial cartoons I was going to bring up earlier when you were talking about the really milk-toasty editorial cartoons, the best thing that people don't know about is the Onions editorial cartoonist named just Kelly, who is a pseudonym. It's another artist, and you can figure out who it is if you know enough editorial cartoonists by the style, But even though he draws it in a different style. But uh, Kelly is, like, is the epitome of the worst of the most incredibly kitschy, pabulum pro-patriotic editorial cartoonist out there. Like, it's a parody cartoon. When I first saw it, I wasn't exactly sure because it's so pitch perfect, but then totally over the top. Well, and the best part about it is is that he's this kind of, like, curmudgeonly everyman, and, you know, very right-wing. But what I love that he, he captures about it is is this kind of, like, well, editorial cartoonist, right? We're, we're basically all all white men, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and almost universally, it's a very white white male uh, profession and some are more reactionary and curmudgeonly than others. And what he captures is this like caricature of this kind of like old balding guy who is just like, you know, he mentions his ex-wife, his comics and just like, you know, he hates children. He, he talks about being a drunk and his alimony payments. Like it's just such a great persona. He like infuses in this that, you know, seems like there might be uh, one or two people in the profession that, He's that are sort of like that. It's well, and every strip has the Statue of Liberty crying, or someone trying to harm the Statue of Liberty, and everyone's always crying. <laughs> it's like everyone, or looking righteously indignant about something. Yeah. Well, that was that was that was born out of something that was uh, similar to the the Steve Jobs thing, which was nine eleven. Nine eleven. It was on on par with Steve mm-hmm. Jobs dying. No, what I mean <laughs> is the uh, the cartoon that reaction hate was. Mail. <laughs> no, the, what I mean is the cartoon reaction yeah. to it was was all crying statues of liberty. I mean, it's like notorious in editorial cartooning, right? It was like nine uh, twelve was the day that all editorial cartoonists published a Statue of Liberty crying. Yeah. So then, at, you know, on the day that you saw it, right, it was powerful, and all of these Americans were like, you know, we didn't know even what to think at that point, and everyone, you know. But now, looking back on it, it's just like incredibly 
cheesy and corny. And so the whole crying Statue of Liberty thing has become this like embarrassing trope that a, some, some cartoonists still employ, but for the most part, I think it's been recognized that, you know, it's, the, the, it's time has passed, right? When you're getting mocked week in and week out by a parody onion cartoon, you should know that like <laughs> you're on the, if you're still using the, crying statue of liberty you know you're on the wrong side of history it's the well i think that's the thing is there's lots of excesses in that space because you're trying to tell a story and you know in, in the briefest amount of time possible and some people are phoning it in and in fact some people are taking other people's cartoons and phoning it in as we know from looking at some of the cartooning sites and it's a you know it's a pretty uh it's a pretty difficult uh thing to do day in and day out but so this strip this uh this panel multi-panel strip of Steve Jobs. This winds up being, I think, the impetus for a lot of things because not that many months later, uh, you, I know that you're applying for the, you know, a lot of the awards. It's not a dirty secret or anything, but awards in every field. You know, the Webbies, uh, people win the Webbies. Well, you got to pay $175 an entry to the Webbies funds itself because thousands and thousands of people enter and they pick a few winners and it's great. So there's a lot of contests for editorial cartooning and other kinds of things and you enter these contests and year after year, a lot of cartoonists don't win and it doesn't often have to to do with quality it has to do with the zeitgeist with the kind of award whatever so you get a call one day it's like hey uh, by the way you won the uh herblock award and we're giving you fifteen thousand dollars and one of the things they mentioned in that citation i recall was that jobs cartoon they singled it out as one of the sort of preeminent examples of your year's work in 2011 tell me about the moment when <laughs> someone says here's more money than you usually make in a year for the work that you love to do yeah, well, that just, I was just in sitting in an airport working on my next cartoon and checking my email on my phone. So, um, <laughs> that's how, that's how I found out. But no, it was incredible. And, you know, I submitted, of course. So I wanted to win, but I didn't in a thousand years actually think I had a legitimate chance. It's one of the things that you, you enter because it's a no entry fee and you get $15,000. So you, of course, enter. Let's take a break to talk about sponsorship. You know, I call the folks who financially underwrite these podcasts sponsors, not advertisers. It's not a euphemism. Rather, we try to find a good fit between the message of the new disruptors and the folks who want to help pay for the costs of its production and distribution. I try to test or use all the products and services that I tell you about because I want to know that it's a good offering and a good fit. It should be something useful for listeners that I know will help you in your entrepreneurship or general business or personal lives. Likewise, I don't want a sponsor to think that they are reaching the right group of people with their message when they aren't. If you'd like to reach the good-looking, intelligent, and clever listeners of The New Disruptors, we have some sponsorship slots open in future episodes. Go to podlexing.com. That's P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G dot com to reach Lex Friedman, who handles sponsorships for the show, and who co-hosts his own excellent program, Unprofessional. Thanks to our sponsors and to you, dear listener, for making this show possible. And now, back to the podcast. Well, that's because right, Herblock was one of you. I mean, he left his estate, which people had no idea it was that as big as it was. He donated all his cartoons to the Library of Congress, and he set this up so that there'd be money in perpetuity for other editorial cartoonists. Yeah, and I think the the goal of it is kind of to become, you know, one of the biggest editorial cartooning prizes or the biggest, right? Which I think it is now, you know, with the Pulitzer, putting aside the Pulitzer, it eclipses it all the other ones except for that. And it's definitely the one that everybody wants to win, both because of the money, but also because 
there's kind of some prestige, right? They throw this like lavish DC ceremony that you got to see when I won. And That's right. just, I, I covered that for Boing Boing. I flew out and picked up some news and, uh, and managed to fund the trip. And it was a hoot. I mean, the building is gorgeous. And Gary Trudeau gave a talk before, before you gave your speech. And there's, you know, or the most expensive hors d'oeuvres I've ever seen served. It was in giant blow ups of all your cartoons in this, the most beautiful, gorgeous building. It's, it's a, it's a deal. It's not a, and then, People, I mean, all the, the all the um, high-ranking, usually lefty people in D.C. are attending the party. So it's a pretty crazy thing, right? And and you know, part of that is that the Herblock Foundation wants to kind of, you know, build its prestige and reputation and be kind of like the place for well, supporting editorial cartooning. They also do a, a ton of other stuff, right, with like education and stuff like that. I mean, they give away a lot of money every year. But the prize is kind of like the prestige thing. And all of that was uh, fine and well with me, right? Like I can hang out at an open bar and eat hors d'oeuvres <laughs> all night. But I think what was very different from me with the other previous winners, which were all people who had staff jobs, at least at the time, a few yeah. of them have been laid off since then, was that, you know, these are guys, I'm sure they all could use, as anyone can, unless you're a uh, a dirty one percenter could use, you know, 15 grand. Right. But, you know, for me, like I said, this was more money than I make from my cartooning in a, in a year, almost as you know, much money as I make in a year total practically. And, and, um, so it had, it had a real transformative effect. I mean, I would still be here drawing comics if I hadn't won that, but I wouldn't be as, you know, I, it furthered my career a couple steps. I mean, for, for one, I just kind of was like, all right, well, I'm going to focus on things I want to focus on now. So, like, you know, I can say no to freelance work I don't want to do. And I, I'm barely doing any right now because I'm just trying to focus on, you know, doing my books, doing other stuff. And this, so that led directly to me finally, after almost 10 years, putting together a collection of my work. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, this is what the MacArthur Fellowships are for, too, the MacArthur Foundation. They're genius grants. One of the things that it's about, really, is they're trying to give people who they think are doing work that is interesting and good for society, culture, science, whatever, the space to actually make that decision. And it sounds like this was the equivalent of a genius grant for you. It was enough money that you actually had time to breathe. Yeah, and I can't stress how important that was you know after working nine years as a freelancer in editorial cartooning just kind of like given that opportunity right i mean that's what a lot of cartoonists are lacking is just like the time and money to focus on on what they want to do i mean they carve out a lot of you can your passion alone can can uh account for a lot but you know you actually have to work and pay bills and if you're just given a ch big chunk of money you can say like all right I'm going to just uh, put that aside and and do whatever I want to do now. So that led directly to the creation of the Kickstarter, which led to me basically being full-time political cartoonist, which I couldn't technically say before because I was, you know, half of my work week was always doing illustrations and other stuff for publications. And now um, I do very little of that. Like I, I, uh, I, I joked with you, you hired me to do an illustration recently for the magazine, which you are the uh, newly newly crowned publisher of, by the way. That's right. If I if I didn't host this show, I'd ask to be on it, but it'd be a little egotistical for me to interview myself, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'll hire someone to interview me yeah. about uh, what it's like to uh, disrupt the magazine. Yeah, this because and this has been, on the flip side, one of the things that's been the greatest pleasure I have, and I hope people realize I'm being completely sincere. As a freelancer for 
uh, 20 years with barely a job in there for more than a few months or so here and there for the last 20 years, being able to write checks to writers that I think are of a decent amount and to illustrators and photographers, it is the greatest thing in the world. It's, you know, the, the, the line I kept saying is, you know, we're, the magazine was going to pay out over $100,000 in its first 12 months to writers and artists and, and we'll probably exceed that by a bit too. Money that wasn't in the system. This is new money that people wouldn't have had otherwise and it is it's like the fact that I can write you a check and say I want you to do a great illustration which you did for Scott McNulty's article about uh, Dungeons and Dragons and introversion and just know that like I'm not cheaping you out <laughs> so I'm not would you do this for free you know we're a startup and we're really lean and um, yeah. we've got this VC company we got to conserve the burn it's like no here's money that's actually not too far off from a normal fee for a publication and and please do it and it's it's a joy to do it Oh yeah, no, it was it was, it was great. And actually, what I was going to say is that I, I took that on because because you're a friend, and because also I had been just doing entirely my own stuff, and I was like, oh man, I would love to do like a freelance <laughs> illustration again. Like I kind of came full circle yeah. to wanting to wanting to do something else, and you know, get a little money and take a break. But uh, I also like working for publications like the the magazine which are like these new tablet publications i mean i've been like the only places i've been freelancing for like these newer really small um tablet publications that i'm kind of as someone who has like transitioned from print to online i'm kind of encouraged by these um the economics of, of some of these things like uh like your publication and symbolia and not safe for work corp I love that there's all these happening and we're just the, I think we're the thin edge of the wedge. Like when Marco launched the magazine, it was like, oh, he's got a new vision of publishing. It wasn't that. What it was, he was tapping into what he knew people from his time building Instapaper. He knew what people wanted in the reading experience and he knew what people were reading. It's like he didn't think, I mean, you know, he did something nice and unique and clean and it's a wonderful app. It is all the experience stuff is great. Of course, like that. Well not yeah. said but it's but he was tapping into what he could see happening in the sort of everyone having mobiles everyone wanting to read people wanting to read long form like all of it's happening at once and now i think 6 8 months into the magazine's life we're seeing nsf uh, has this their publication is more than a few months old now symbolia goes back to i think january or february and uh, or maybe even last year so we're and then the, the loop just launched this max kind of focused publication and there's new platforms for app publishing for small publications to do it affordably and look good it's all happening at once well and the thing that i like about it uh, as a quote-unquote content creator another word that i hate <laughs> i hate all these words and i'm we have to just all say them now content sharing uh engagement but I'm still going to stop and say that I don't like the words. So anyway, you're a draw, you're a drawer. Yeah, as a as a content creator, um, what, one of the things I like about these these magazines is that they're actually showing that you can get people to pay for things now. New publications that don't have this like institutional history, like Harper's or the New Yorker or something, and that we've kind of come to a point in the web with crowdsourcing and with kind of subscribing to these new kind of publications that people will actually. Uh, pay money for them, and one of the places I'm doing work for, uh, not say for Work Corp, and they it's it's exclusive and it's not like for, for free online, right? They're not trying to get traffic. They're their stuff is behind kind of a, I don't know what you call it, a, a porous paywall or whatever. Can you read there? You can read a little bit. Oh no, you can't read. They make a little bit free, but they're they're very their paywall is not very porous. Well, there's they they have an online 
slash tablet edition every week, which is only subscribers can unlock articles. And then you go in through that link, only that link. Mm -hmm. And it's for 24 hours and stuff, you know, and then, um, they have a print edition every month now, which is the thing that I've been doing comics for. So I've done stuff for all three other print editions and it's, it's not just stuff from their online uh, site. It's like all new content, only available. It's not even on newsstands yet. They probably have a you know plan to get it on newsstands, but right now it's only for subscribers. And like you know, I think people who have kind of come of age in their careers through the web comics kind of community and that model are really that's almost like the antithesis of it, right? It's all about getting more and more people to see your work, and therefore you know gaining popularity, getting them to buy your ancillary merchandise and stuff like that. And that's, that's fine. And it works for some people. And, uh, I do some of that with my own website, but with political cartooning, especially it's like, you have to be paid for the thing, right? Like you can get people to buy the book, but only hardcore readers. And there's not like a lot of opportunities for shirts or plush toys or whatever, right? It's like, I'm right. Cause that's the, that's the web comics world. We talked about this a little bit though, is that like the web comics artists who've done very well financially have done so because they can sell people are rabid about like they have a character, they have, it's cute or the, the opposite of cute, like PVP is full of non cute stuff or penny arcade. You know, <laughs> there's like, things I can't say in this podcast. They do in penny arcade that are extremely popular. And so they sell t-shirts and mugs and games and like all of the paraphernalia that surrounds it. Um, or, you know, we've talked before about the order of the stick figure that had a 1 million plus Kickstarter that I think stunned them where it was just reprints of stuff and some games and posters and they had an incredibly rabid audience that wanted to buy stuff associated with it. And I think you've always maintained, I think you know, Tom Tomorrow and other folks maintained that the editorial cartooning world, political cartooning world, it's harder to make that connection because it's like you're not going to be selling stuff to Obama. I mean, Os- excuse me, <laughs> Obama Sin Laden, uh, Osama Bin Laden dolls. And, you know, but the irony, of course, is you say that and then I'm like, Tom Tomorrow came out with a plushy Sparky. And I don't know how well it's selling, but it's still been his mascot in the strip for uh, well over a decade, maybe longer. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I thought that was, it wasn't a capitulation, but it was a wonderful thing where it's like, you know, the time is right. There's a big enough fan base. Let's make a plush doll of Sparky. Sure, you know, and, and if that's the way we're going, then that's I'll make the avenging uterus plush toy, right? Absolutely. That's like my character. Pretty cute. You know, it's I think there's there's always kind of been, depending on how closely you followed the history of this stuff. I mean, there's been sort of a debate between print and web cartoonists about this very thing, like whether this model is going to work or whatever. And it's sort of like, it, you know, it's kind of two you know two groups talking past each other a lot of the time, right? I mean, whatever works works. But I do think with political cartooning especially, it's like getting paid for the thing up front is is what you need to do. And, you know, one of the reasons, besides the merchandise and all that crap, is that, you know, I'm not just doing something for an immediate fan base or of people who agree with me. Like, I'm doing something that's supposed to have the widest possible reach. And that used to be through newspapers, right? Like, the whole point is to, like, engage people and be part of the discussion. It's not, like just what you do if you if you create a comic that's about, you know, vampires who are furries, right? Then you get the vampire furry crowd. <laughs> it's 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 supposed to be, right? Out Rule in the, 34. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure that would actually be a very popular model. I was talking to some cartoonists who do these kind of like fantasy animal-based comics, and they said they will they go to furry conventions and sell their stuff and mm-hmm. those people go crazy cuz they're 
It's a you know niche audience or whatever. But political cartoons are not a niche, or they at least they shouldn't be. They probably are at this point. But you know, so my point being, we still rely on uh, publications actually paying us to run this stuff and put out right. Like I don't want it to just be me putting them on my website and having no no clients give me money. I mean, I do make money through my site now with like very little bit of advertising and, um, you know, the whole Kickstarter and selling my book there and everything like that. But I, I still make more of my money from clients. And now it's like, yeah, I probably make more money from digital clients than I do print clients. And I don't want that to go away. Right. There's the kind of this, whenever an industry is failing, there's this real like dismissive attitude people have on the internet especially if they're kind of doing something a different way, which is like, oh, you know, you're just a dinosaur that's dying. That's the dumb old model. <laughs> and it's like, no, there's plenty of things that are dumb about old media or print media or whatever you want to call it. But this is also like an industry that has sustained a ton of jobs. You know, the Huffington Post and BuzzFeed and all these other sites in Gawker are not opening up bureaus in Kabul and, and um, you know. Well, I don't know. The weird thing is they are like BuzzFeed is becoming a real news organization. It is opening bureaus, hiring Don't say more that news people. Time. They're not no, a real news organization. It is. You got to watch what's going on with them. The, in the, BuzzFeed is slowly transforming itself into something in which we think of it as the thirty-five listicles, yeah. and yet it is actually uh, becoming something quite different. So well, I saw their. Par- I saw now this week they're partnering with CNN and kind of doing these. Partnering with CNN, they run you know Business Insider. I think or no BuzzFeed runs Economist articles under license. I think or Business Insider does. You know a lot of these things start as bottom feed. This is the the innovators uh, dilemma thing that I think we talk about every other episode on this podcast about the fact that there's an incredible amount of room at the bottom of industries where people don't have the interest or don't feel like the margins are big enough. So the Huffington Post gets, you know, 400 billion page views a month and they monetize those at, you know, a hundredth of what the New York Times does. Well, New York Times looks down its nose at that, maybe rightly so. And same thing with BuzzFeed. But then they figure out how to do that model really cheaply and efficiently. And then they start climbing up the value chain. And BuzzFeed is eventually going to be, it's on the road to be, a serious multinational, multi-bureau news organization that has a humor part and has a news part. And it's going to, you know, political reporting and the rest of it. It's going to be fascinating. Hmm. Well, I... uh... And it's not even, I'll tell you this, I'm not a big fan of the BuzzFeed model or what they do and whatever. I'm saying that like in opposition to my fact that I have some mild distaste about a lot of the things that they do there on the sort of humor reappropriation side. Yeah, well, I know that they've hired, you know, Huffington Post and BuzzFeed have hired, you know, real reporters and they pay them very well. You know, Ben Smith was pulled away from Politico. But in the end, they're building divisions. They're not just hiring reporters. They're becoming a new kind of thing inside of it. And, you know, if they'll be successful, not as different than where they're putting their their money now. Well, they're... um you mentioned the New York Times. I mean, there's a reason why if you go on Huffington Post, it's like this, it looks like a social media <laughs> uh, monster vomited on it. I mean, it's just like, it's like, you know, scroll down endlessly and it's like slideshows and share this and comments and links to this and ads and, and every everything imaginable. Because um, they're just trying to like monetize the hell out of this like other crappy low content that they mm-hmm. have paid virtually nothing for. So they're slapping together slideshows and BuzzFeed is doing listicles and cat gifts and whatnot because you don't actually have to pay someone to do all that stuff or you just pay an intern or in ariano's huffington's case you can auction off 
internships and get people to get the you know the children of uh, the rich and privileged to to pay thirteen thousand dollars to have a six month unpaid internship. That's why uh, you and I have both backed ProPublica's Kickstarter, the uh, intern economy, for an investigative report on how internships work. But let me circle back to what you were talking about before, because yeah. so we have like let's say the lowest common denominator in this world is Huffington Post or BuzzFeed or Business Insider, where they get a bazillion hits a month. They then they're selling. At incredibly low rates, they have to have an enormous amount of traffic to make it work. And the flip side is NSFW and the magazine and publications on our end of it where the secret, I think, the code that we cracked so far, if it's sustainable, is we need a very small number of people. Like in a magazine, like we've talked about it, we have, you know, five-digit numbers of subscribers paying $2 a month. Well, that's enough money for me and for part-time people and then this army of freelance people of writers and illustrators and so forth. So we're not a news bureau. We don't have 10 people producing the thing, but we don't have to. There could be a hundred small publications like us, each with our own modest niche audiences that produce enough money to actually pay other contributors decently. And that seems to be what you're finding on, but the paywall is the key is that because we don't give everything away for free, people have to pay. And if we convince them that the quality is high enough, a small number of people will. It doesn't have to be a huge number. And the economic works for us and it works for you as a contributor. Yeah, well, and I'm even, you know, that's sort of a similar thing to what I'm doing with the the Kickstarter. I mean, out of the Kickstarter, one of the, the level above my book, right? You bought the book for 25 bucks, and then the level above that, I think it was for $15 more. It was basically a subscription, right? And you get all of my comics in your inbox every week, plus uh, some commentary and extra stuff and stuff like that. And um, a lot of premium bores because it's, right. it's stuff that I can't get. I mean, you're not pushing out. You are keeping some of that back. This doesn't all go on your website and we're getting the first look. Right. But it's also, you know, I think so. Well, first of all, a couple hundred people have signed up through, through that. And the, the true test will be next year when it's not the Kickstarter and they have to re-up, right? But a couple hundred, and I've since raised the price to $18. So, so $18 a year. So, right. So if yeah. you can, you know, a couple hundred people at $18 a year adds up, right? We're talking thousands of dollars. We're not talking tens of thousands, but we're talking about adding a big, uh, uh, what I consider a big chunk of income on top of my syndication income, right? Like I've, And then you add in book sales and, you know, Google ads or something. And then it's like I've doubled my income, mm-hmm. right? Essentially from my editorial cartoons. So that's one of the things I've been able to do this year. And so the, um, yeah, getting people to subscribe or sort of give you money and actually pay for things now is something that big websites don't seem willing to do, at least in my corner of the universe with editorial cartoons, but that you can get from, you know, these smaller publications that have some money and kind of understand the value of content and sort of have a more of an ethos about it, right? About how they kind of get content and pay for it and what their whole publication is built on. And then this like Kickstarter model, which has allowed me to sort of work on a scale that wouldn't have been desirable back in the, when book publishing worked out, right? Like like a publisher taking on my book to print 5,000 copies would have just involved like me getting in advance and then sitting here and doing nothing and then 5,000 copies ending up in bookstores. But instead now I'm like, you know, I'm physically mailing, I'm doing all this crap that Kickstarter people do, which is a lot of extra work. But the upside of it is that I am not splitting anything with a publisher and I got a $20 book that's now paid for. Well, I, was gonna, yeah, I want to mention that for a second, we cycle back to the Kickstarter is that you, uh, there's a lot of different opinions about how Kickstarters work, and I think uh, people listening to this show know the right opinion. 
<laughs> you know what it's really about. But there's often this perception, I think, in the general world that's getting smaller and smaller is the, why am I giving money to somebody for something they do already and they could do through some other means and they're just going to pocket all the cash. And in reality, most Kickstarters that I'm aware of Pretty much all the money, you know, if someone makes money off it, quote unquote, which somehow sounds undesirable, it's like your fans are giving you money. So that should be okay to begin with. That's what they do when they go to your concerts. They buy your, you know, albums. They buy your cartoons. They well, buy that's your why I got an, uh, I took some of my Kickstarter funds and bought an I Heart Haters t-shirt. <laughs> that's perfect. You but, know, but people, they, I think there's some substance to that because there are kind of people who are more well-established kind of running some, you know, controversial Kickstarters that where it's like, why is this person doing this? But, but you're telling people to not give money to – like that's the thing. I wrote a piece for The Economist called uh, – should it was in the Economist Explain series is uh, should famous people use Kickstarter? You know, is that unfair? Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's not because it ha- you have to have this paternalistic attitude that oh, people are being talked into, they're being coerced somehow by gangs of roving Veronica Mars fans to give money. Like, no, the reason Veronica Mars made millions of dollars, they set out exactly what they're doing, where the money's going, the fact that there's a distributor, they're working with the studio, and what the money was going to be used for, and people gave them money. It wasn't collected, it wasn't a tax. So, yeah. But I think let's let's focus on the scale that you're at, is that this for you was um, used the way a lot of a lot of Kickstarters do, which is that um, you know you pocketed ten dollars out of it. <laughs> I don't know, maybe or maybe a few dollars more, but that really the money became a way for you to have a thing that you could do in quantity. In this case, print a bunch of books that the Kickstarter paid a hundred percent of the costs associated with, and now when you sell them, you keep a hundred percent of the net after whatever you know shipping or other costs you might have, sales tax or something. Yeah, exactly. You know, I had I uh, printed twenty five hundred copies of my book. I got rid of. Almost seven hundred through the Kickstarter, and then you know I factor in sales since then on my website and some cons I've done. You know I've sold well over a thousand, and I'm also hooking up some distribution with a, a publisher now. Top Shelf is going to get you know the four or five, six hundred or however many into into stores, and I'm going to continue to sell the rest through my site and you know make make twenty dollars a piece. But yeah, you know I did a thirty five k Kickstarter, which. Awesome. Uh, to some people, is a ton of money, and to some Kickstarters, as comic Kickstarters, it's it's what they make in two days, right? So it's it's all relative. But we were talking about this with scale, though. Is that you know you said it's true fans, right? You had seven hundred and twenty-five people contribute something, and yeah. that's not a ton of people, but it's a multiplying effect. It's a ton of money. I mean, there's millions of people who've seen your work. There's probably tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands that it could identify in some fashion, and then there's you know more comics aficionados. So you're getting this core. So it's not that your work is unknown, but you. You get down to it and the same thing like Amanda Palmer at a different scale. I always bring her up because people forget she only had about 25,000 people give her money. It wasn't – she didn't get a million people. I mean Veronica Mars had 100,000. Only 25,000. That's a ton. Well, it is but that's – like That's like an entire city. No, but it is, it's not though. You had – she only had – I mean given her reach, she had like 30 or 40 times the number of people you did. That scale is not that huge relative to what you're talking about in terms of reach. She's a rock star. She has national, you know, she has all this reach and and ability and whatever involvement with her fans, but a million people didn't contribute a dollar each. It was 25,000 people contributed like 40 to 50 on average. So I think the same thing happened here with you is you got 35 grand from 725 true fans who love your stuff, who contributed at different levels. And now in the next year, it's possible you could make as much from your book as you did from the Herblock Award, conceivably, selling copies in the next year. Yeah, no, um, I, I could if I get rid of this uh, 
stash I have for sure. And that's, that's, that's kind of my goal and what I hope to do. I, I just have to hope that the amount of people who want my book is not 1,000 people, it's 2,500 people, right? I, I think it is. That's the marketing thing too. Is I mean, the Kickstarter is pre-orders, so you have a crowd of people who they don't want to get in on that side of it. But once it's available and people find you, th- this is something I wanted to come back to too, is when we talked about the web comics folks briefly a little bit ago, they have a bunch of different revenue sources, right? And that's one of the things that's made it work is sometimes they do advertising, sometimes they get sponsors and merchandise has been very successful. Then they do books and so forth. And some of them are making, you know, a small percentage are making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. A larger percentage are making thousands to tens of thousands a year from this mix. You now have this mix of revenue you did not have two years ago. I mean, you did bits and pieces of it, but you've got the book, you've got your mailing list subscription, you've got uh, signed art that you sold before, but you're selling originals. And it's, I think, a little bit easier to to do that now in the new system, you did the Kickstarter, and, and you know you're doing illustrations for some publications like mine. So it feels to me like one of the changes in the last two years is you've been able to diversify. You know, it's not all from drawing; it's from selling your drawings and then other kinds of things that come out of that. Right, and I would put a, a little bit more of a cynical spin on it and just say that it was done. You know, maybe more out of desperation than you know than anything else. I mean, brilliant desperation. Yeah, but. You know, it, it is encouraging that you're able to do this stuff now. I mean, it's sort of born out of necessity, right? But, you know, as I lost print clients, I mean, I just kind of had to, that was a, a big motivating factor. I was like, okay, you know, what am I going to do? Because I, I don't want to actually stop doing this ever. Um, so, you know, that was kind of a big boost. Like, what do I want to say, creatively or something? Or just kind of, you know, you, you work in a room mm-hmm. seven hours, seven days a week and kind of, you know, you get encouragement and your cartoons take off and you, you get paid for it and you like it, but it, it's still sometimes kind of like, you know, you kind of wonder if this is ever going anywhere, if you're deluding yourself, right? Because when you're, you know, you were saying, well, you know, the, the Steve Jobs cartoon got around and people will say to me sometimes like, oh, I see your cartoon everywhere. Like, but that doesn't actually transmit and translate into being able to make a living from it, right? right? So, you know, I think all, all cartoonists sort of go through these constant existential crises about whether they're frauds or whether or not this is ever going to work out or whether it's like time to throw in the towel. And the her block did not really fulfill that need because it, it's just like a one-time thing, right? I still had to figure something else out. The Kickstarter was more encouraging in, in that way. It was like, Okay, I actually have a base of readers who, you know, not only like my work but are willing to support it and give me enough money to kind of uh, do the next thing, right? And so now, like you said, I might be able to, if I can flip these books around, I can make another an, another chunk of money to kind of plan plan the next thing. And that's kind of where. Whereas before, I was like one week ahead of where I'm at. You know, I was always like, okay, I've got a <laughs> deadline on Sunday. I've got a cartoon. Like, what, what's happening in the news? Now I'm uh, I can I can see further, right? I can project further. I can see. Uh, I got you know. I can see two books out. It's uh. Interesting to me, too, because uh, the Kickstarter was very valuable to you in all these ways. And, of course, what it made you do is have to work even harder for six months to deliver it on time, which you did. Yes, yes. Um, Because you weren't working hard enough. Well, uh, yeah, all I did was practically work on this thing. It had a really tight turnaround. And I would have been fine with blowing the Kickstarter deadline, to be honest. I mean, that's almost – that's kind of – can be arbitrary sometimes. But this one was based on needing to have it for conventions. And – yeah, you know, if I didn't, if I didn't have it, I, I had tables at Stumptown and TCAF and VanCAF in Canada, and you know, if I didn't have the book done in time, I was just going to be sitting there. Um, what, <laughs> twirling, your, 
I'll draw pictures of you for money if you like. Yeah, but. so that was a huge motivating factor. And then, you know, I've sold hundreds of, of uh, books since then, so that was uh, good. But yeah, I basically was in full Kickstarter mode, you know, all waking hours of the day for like the last month of production. And I, I, I wrote, you know, it's not just comics. There's 22,000 words in there that I wrote basically in five weeks. It's a, it's a lovely book. I have two copies, in fact, which I appreciate, and uh, with some custom drawings in them. Thank you very much. I think I accidentally mailed you the second That's, one. I don't, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll keep it. I'll cherish one will be the mint copy that I keep forever, and the other will be the reading copy. Yeah, the coffee table that's, version. That's right. Well, Matt, thank you so much for talking about all this. I, you know, I think I, it's, I, I think the arc of your life is really, you know, it's great to be at this point in your life, obviously, where things are, everything's looking up, Matt. But it's also, you know, I think some people, they, if they, I think your career reflects not just the commitment to what you're doing and the, you know, the interest in it, but it's also, there's not always a payoff for everybody. I mean, I recognize that in life, but I think a lot of the things that have worked for you in the last few years have to do with the transformation in different parts of the economy with you know, commerce and technology that have allowed you to make that connection that wouldn't have been possible. So you're, it's not that you change what you're doing over your career so much as things changed around you. And now you had the ability to do a Kickstarter, which didn't exist a few years ago, or to do certain kinds of e-commerce. that's easier now than it used to be. And uh, all the pieces have come together. I feel like that have facilitated this stage in your career. You earned it, but it's also, it, it grew up around what you've been doing. Yeah, at least until the next implosion of media. <laughs> no, this will never, it's a golden age. This will never end. <laughs> yeah. Quote the Simpsons. Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot, Colin. You've been listening to The New Disruptors, a podcast for and about creative people and the audiences they reach. We're part of the Mule Radio Syndicate. Visit muleradio.net slash new disruptors for the detailed show notes and links for this episode, as well as to listen to or download any previous episode. You can use our site to subscribe to the podcast via RSS or click a link to find us on iTunes, where you can rate and review the podcast. Click the contact link on our page or email newdisruptors at muleradio.net if you have compliments, complaints, or suggestions. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, drop us a line or visit sponsor.muleradio.net. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time.